hear the word of the Lord. But the holy things that are due from you and your vow offerings you shall take, and you shall go to the place that the Lord will choose, and offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood, on the altar of the Lord your God. The blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, but the flesh you may eat. Be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? that I also may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Thus says God's word. Will you pray with me for the service? Father, thank you for just what you have already been doing, what you've already been stirring in our hearts through our times of singing together, through our time of prayer together, Lord. And Lord, we are just coming to this moment of hearing your word drenched in grace. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the constant reminder that we are not responsible for our our salvation. We are not the ones who who uh, chose you, but Lord, the great mystery of the ages is that you chose us, God, and that you have called us to be saints, and that you have, as Peter says, called us out of darkness into your marvelous lights, so that so that we can show forth your praises. And we thank you for that, Lord. As we look at this passage today, I pray that you would open our eyes to see things for some of us to see them for the first time, for others to see them with more clarity, and God, for all of us to be instructed by your word. Lord, I pray that you would search all of our hearts with your word, by your spirit, and help us to comply our lives, to to, uh, uh, to just conform our lives to what you have said, because we know that your words, as you said in your word, are life and they're truth, and we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you would give uh, an, a, a just an enabling to my efforts, Lord. I know my weakness, my frailty, God, the, the inability that I have within myself to communicate anything of any worth, let alone the most ultimate worthy thing in the universe, your word. And so, God, I pray for your help. I rely on your help. I look for your help. And, um, God, I, I pray that I would, I would um, please you in everything I do this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So good to have you all here. Um, I want to let you know real quickly about a couple of things that are happening. Um, some of you have mentioned this to me and asked a couple of questions. Um, today we are starting something that we hope we'll be able to continue, um, but we are starting a, an after church um, discussion and just fellowship time. And so the way we're going to do it is it, uh, we, we want to give you some, some time. We're going to start at 12.15. We're usually done easily by 11.30. Um, and so we want to give you some time to run and go grab some fast food. Maybe some of you brought something from home. And then we'll just set up some tables, and we're going to have some time just enjoying each other's company um, with our families. And then we will um, have a time where we just kind of talk through some things uh, mostly related to this message. And so we, uh, we hope that you will... Uh, stick around for that, and if you weren't prepared, then just go grab something real quick. There's lots of places up and down the street, and um, and we'll uh, we'll we would love to have you for that. Um, also, want to mention to you, we've we've had a lot of new faces at Northridge, and um, uh, we are. It should be the the announcement should be in your bulletin that next month, uh, I think it's the last week of March and the first week of April, we are having a new members uh, information class. And if you are interested in, um, in being a part of Northridge Life, if you feel like the Lord is calling you to be a part of what God is doing here, then we want you to uh, uh, be with us in those. So what we'd like for you to do, this is the real important part of that, let myself know, let Pastor David know, let Gabriel know, 
let somebody in leadership know that you're going to be a part of that so we can get materials in your hands and make sure you're on the list and have everything ready for you when you come. That uh, all that information should be in your in your bulletin there. So um, you may have thought it odd that uh, Raven had you open your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy because over a year now we have been in the book of Mark and we're not done with the book of Mark. So you might think, what on earth is going on? Well, let me tell you, we're pausing our series just briefly um, to do something that I have wanted to do for a while. And that is to give further explanation um, and, and maybe even make a defense or in, in theological terms an apologetic to give you, give you some light on the, things, uh, on the reasons we do the things we do here at Northridge Life, primarily in our services. And I wanted to do this for the following reasons. I wanted, as I said, to clarify things for new families because if you could, like I usually get the privilege to talk to the new families, you would find that they come from differing church backgrounds and some of them come from no church background. And so when you come from a wildly different church background or a no church background, then some of the things we do here might seem kind of odd or strange or, you know, may need a little explanation. Um, but we've also had, quite frankly, questions from long-timers who have asked, why do we do things like read through catechisms, centuries-old catechisms in our services? Why do we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper weekly when other churches do it every month or every quarter? What, are, what is the reasoning behind those things? And so the questions that you may or may not be asking are related to liturgy. Uh, now, some of you have never heard that word before. Some of you have heard it um, in relation to the worship that happens in churches, but you may not know fully or clearly what it means. Well, this word liturgy comes from a Greek word, liturgia. And we're not going to ask you to remember that in the discussion questions this afternoon, but liturgia, and it simply means this. There's nothing, there's nothing you know, majestic about it. It just means a ministry or a service. The liturgy speaks to the manner in which we conduct services. And in fact, the, matter, the manner in which all churches conduct services. Now, this can be confusing because some churches will claim to be liturgical and they do so with an air of almost sophistication. And when they say that they are liturgical, they mean we have a pipe organ and we light candles and our pastor wears robes. And I asked the elders if I could wear robes just because it would make deciding what to wear Sunday mornings a whole lot easier. But others, other churches speak with, speak about liturgy with almost disdain. You know, that they, they turn their nose up at the very idea of liturgy. Um, and they, when they talk about their own churches, they boast about the lack of structure to be found in their preferred churches. But in neither case, what I want you to understand, those who boast in their liturgy and those who try to deny liturgy, in neither case does the term liturgy or liturgical strictly apply. Neither case. Because what I want you to understand, if you get nothing else this morning, every single church across every continent and across our entire planet, every single one of them has a liturgy. Everyone. There's no exception. Now, those liturgies may be wildly different, but they still have a liturgy. So in that sense, every single church you've ever visited or ever will visit is what? It's liturgical. Y'all with me so far? Okay. So litur liturgy is the construct, as we've said, of a particular church's worship service, regardless of their denomination, their tradition, or, or theology. So liturgical doesn't define a certain type of worship, but it leads to this question. This is the more important question, not is this church liturgical or is it not liturgical. This is the more important question. What type of liturgy does this particular church or a particular church have? Now, when I was young, and you guys, most of you know my story, when I was young, um, I was raised Pentecostal. And some things that our Pentecostal church practiced were very similar uh, to what we do here at Northridge. Some examples would be when we would gather for worship, we would sing together. We would give our offerings to the Lord together. We would pray together. And, and almost every Sunday, our pastor preached from the Bible. So there, there were 
similarities, there was continuity between my old Pentecostal church and this church that I am a part of now. But there were other elements that aren't regularly practiced here, like, for example, some sometimes in our services, most times in our services, somebody would stand up and spontaneously begin speaking in tongues, and, and perhaps sometimes there would be an interpretation of those tongues, and uh, some things were even, you know, to, to most of us, odder than that. We would have things like what we call Jericho marches. Everybody familiar with a Jericho march? Raise your hand. Anybody know? Most of you are like, what are you talking about? Well, a Jericho march was when in, in the heat of praise and worship, the congregation would spontaneously stand, form a line, and they would just go around the, the, the sanctuary, uh, you know, over and over again and shouting and, and drawing uh, imagery to the uh, story of Joshua when they walked around Jericho. So they call them Jericho marches. Now, these things seemed spontaneous. They seemed less planned, but make no mistake about it, these elements in my old church were all a part of our liturgy. They were the expected construct of our worship services. Now, even though that's true, I never once heard the word liturgy in our church. Never. It never came up. It was never an issue. But these things were an accepted part of our worship. And we expected these elements, because they were an accepted part, to be regularly included in our, in our services. We had a structure. It was a different structure than what we have here. But we had a structure, and yet it was a liturgy. Now, because all churches have a liturgy of one type or another, there's another very important question that we must ask. And in fact, on the question of liturgy, I would say it's the most important question we can ask. And it's this. How does a church formulate its liturgy? Would you find that to be an important question? One, two, three, four, five. Okay, the rest of y'all can go ahead and go home. <laughs> How does a church formulate its liturgy? How are the different elements of a different church and a different liturgy deemed acceptable? What is the basis? What is the foundation for a church's liturgy? Is it subject to the creativity of the one planning the service? Is it, is it um, you know, built as, as a striving towards some sort of innovation? Or is there some guidance that we are given in the scriptures for how a liturgy should be constructed? Now, historically, individual churches have used one of two opposing principles to determine what elements should be incorporated into a church's, uh, into a congregation's rather worship. And those principles are the normative principle and the regulative principle. Don't sweat it, I'm going to explain them in just a minute. Now, while there may exist, like I said about, you know, the preaching in my Pentecostal church and preaching we do here, there may exist some certain similarities, some overlap. There are important differences between the two principles. Let's start with the normative principle. The normative principle, simply stated, says that a biblical warrant is not required for including an element in worship as long as there's no biblical prohibition on the element in question. In other words, let me say that a little bit more simply. If the Bible doesn't expressly forbid it, it is reasonable to include that element in corporate worship. Things that are neither prohibited or commanded are normal or normative. The regulative principle, on the other side of the coin, stands opposite of this. It states that a scriptural warrant is required in order to include an element in corporate worship. Or the Bible alone, simply stated, the Bible alone regulates, regulative, our worship of God. Now, the regulative principle is based on three major tenets. Number one, that the church must worship God only in the way that he finds acceptable. Number two, that the Bible regulates special or specific elements of worship insisting on these principles that worship must be intelligible, it must be purposeful, it must be orderly, and it must be proper. And third, if no warrant for an element exists in Scripture, 
then that element must be excluded from corporate worship. Now, what I want to ask is a question, honest question. Do you fear that adherence to the regulative principle causes a judgmental or tyrannical spirit to arise demanding everyone worship in the exact same detail, in every detail as we do? That's, that's the concern that is usually expressed when you talk about the regulative principles. But the principle only speaks to the elements that God requires without denying that there is a variety of ways in which we must use them. Dr. Derek Thompson um, has a great thing that he says on this. about the. He says that the regulative principle does not commit a church to a cookie-cutter a cookie liturgical sameness. Within an adherence to the principle... There's enormous room for variation in matters that Scripture has not specifically addressed. Thus, the regulative principle, as such, may not be invoked to determine whether contemporary or traditional songs are employed, whether three verses or three chapters of Scripture are read, whether some, whether one long prayer or several short prayers are made, or whether a single cup or an individual cup, right, Rochelle, single cup, <laughs> whether a single cup or, or, an indiv- or individual cups with real wine or grape juice are utilized in the Lord's Supper. So all these, Dr. Dr. Thomas says, the principle all things should be done decently in order from 1 Corinthians 14 must be applied. Now, I think most of you, this will come to absolutely no surprise, Northridge Life Church adheres to the regulative principle of worship. And we seek to find guidance for every element of our services, of our worship, our corporate gatherings, not from cultural taste, not from subjective religious experiences, but from the scripture alone. And honestly, seriously, why wouldn't we? If God has said, this worship pleases me, why would we say, that's nice, God, but we're going to try this instead? (laughs) Why wouldn't we? We want this to be apparent to you. So we want... We want it to be very obvious that we adhere to the regulative principle, and we want it to be obvious to you in at least two ways. First, we want there to be a clear biblical command for every element that we include in our worship gatherings. Um, if there isn't a biblical justification from God in His Word to do something, we're convicted, convicted that it has no place in our worship services. And this makes personal taste, if this makes, you know, preference, all of those things, it makes them a non-consideration for us. You know, we never, uh, Pastor David, Pastor Gabriel, Pastor, and myself, we never sit down at a meeting and we say, you know, what would what would really stir up the people? What would they really like? And, and I'm saying that to you because I want you to know that. When we sit down, we say, what does the Word say? And now, let me tell you something. Sometimes we've gotten it right. Sometimes we haven't. And that will continue until Jesus comes back. But our goal, our our passion, is to always follow right along with the lead of Scripture. We don't want to dictate to the God of the universe how He should be worshipped. We want to respond obediently to how He's already revealed to us that He must be worshipped. The Bible makes worship objective. Now, that was a really important statement, and I'm not trying to be dramatic again, but let me say it again. The Bible, the written, objective Word of God, makes our worship objective. We can have, when we follow God's commandments for how He wants to be worshipped, we can have full assurance that our worship is pleasing to God. We don't ever have to have Long Facebook debates, well, you know, some people were barking in church. Is this of God or is this not of God? You know, some people were rolling around on the floor. Is this of God or is this not of God? We don't have to have those debates. Because the scripture clearly tells us the kind of worship that is pleasing to God. It is objective. And I am not speaking for you, but I'll tell you, that gives me a lot of security. A lot of security. The normative principle actually works in the opposite, opposite way. It makes worship, whether it intends to or not, the best 
intentions of the best people utilizing the normative principle, it still works in the opposite way. It, to some degree at least, makes worship subjective. We include elements in our worship that are according more to our tastes, more to our perceptions, and we wind up with golden calves and strange fire that are actually an offense to the God that we're claiming to worship. And that's a problem. The second way that we hope that our commitment to the regulative principle is apparent to you is not that we only find biblical authorization for what we do. We pick this element and that element because the Bible tells us to, but, but it goes deeper than that. We want each individual element of our worship service to be drenched with Scripture. We want it to be soaking wet with the Word of God. We want you to not be able to hear our singing and our praying and our preaching and our partaking of the sacraments without be, having your lives impacted by what God has said. We aren't aiming. The goal of this group and, and those who organize the services like myself and Pastor Dave and Gabriel, we aren't aiming in any level, no level whatsoever, to entertain you. We do not care about enticing a crowd from out there with our musical talent or our oratory skill. I'm making that very apparent this morning. And therefore, because we're not here to entertain or entice, we pray the Scriptures. We sing the Scriptures. We preach the Scriptures. And every Sunday we end by witnessing the Scriptures and the sacraments. The Bible is not just the basis. It's not just the foundation of what we do, it is the substance of everything we do. And may it ever be so. Next week, I, I want to give you, last week I gave you homework. I hope y'all did it. So I'm going to check on you when we get back to Mark. Matthew 23, Matthew 24. See, I'm like you did with your teachers. You thought I forgot. I didn't forget. So I'm just kidding. But next week I want to give, I want to give you some more homework. Next week I want you to count Keep a tally sheet of how many times we are pointing you to the scriptures from beginning to end of the service. Try and see how many quotations and references to the Bible you can find in our songs. Try to see how many verses are interwoven throughout our praying times together. The scripture that we read together at the beginning of the sermon is critical in seeing the value of regulative worship or the regulative principle of worship. I want you to notice, we're not going to read the whole scripture again, but I want you to notice two things about that scripture that Raven read to you from Deuteronomy. First, God tells his people this. He says, go to the place that the Lord your God will choose. God is already saying, not every place is equal when it comes to worshiping. I have a place. And in the new covenant, his place is the church. This is the place where we go to worship the Lord. And he says, to, to go to the altar of the Lord your God. Not your own altar. Not your own design. Very specific designs given to Moses on the mountain. Go to that altar. And he ends with this in that section. He says, be careful to obey all these words that I command you. He's saying, Moses, I care about the worship that is offered to me. And so therefore I'm giving you commands and I expect you to follow those commands. And this ensures, when we hold to this first principle... This ensures that our worship is pleasing to him. But second, God says this, and this is real critical to our generation. Do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods, that I may also do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. This isn't only speaking about the nations that would bend their knee to wood and stone but about adjusting our worship not to the dictates of what God has told us, but to the culture around us. Saying, this will be pleasing to them. That will attract them. This will draw them in. No. We do not consult the culture for our worship. We consult the Word. God says in that passage that He hates the, way, the ways that the nations worship their gods. And he proves that he will not tolerate, by, tolerate it by driving those nations out before his own people. There is no more concise justification. If I could only point to one scripture, and there's hundreds, 
that I could point you to. I'm going to hopefully do some of that today. But if I could only point you to one scripture that justifies the regulative principle, it would be this. The, the last verse Raven read to us, Deuteronomy 12.32, Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. Now, before you say, you know, well, that's speaking of this or that's speaking of that, what is the context of this passage? Somebody shout it out. What is the context of this passage in Deuteronomy? Worship. Worship is the context. And, and the, under the context of worship, he says, don't add to it, don't take away from it. Do everything that I've commanded you. So, let's get down to, as Nacho Libre, Libre says, the needy-greedy. So what are the biblical grounds for the structure of worship services at North Ridge Life Church? Today and next week, I'm going to look at each individual element of our regular worship service so you can decide whether we're doing here what God has clearly commanded. So every week, our, our services start the same way with a short chorus. That chorus is called the Gloria Patri. It's Latin for glory to the Father. And churches, I wish I had time to go into all the history, but churches for centuries, long before the Reformation, have incorporated, incorporated the Gloria Patri into their worship. The words you sing them every week, glory to, uh, be to the Father and to the Son, to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. And this hymn serves a twofold purpose. And the reason why we take the 30 seconds or whatever it takes to sing it every single week. First, it affirms for us the biblical view that salvation, which is what we're here celebrating, right? I mean, that's the whole reason we're here. Amen? Salvation is a joint work of each person of the Trinity. And it roots us, when we sing those words, it roots us all in a Trinitarian doctrine weekly, right off the bat. When we first get in here, we're already thinking about the Trinity. See, what the Trinity teaches about our salvation, what the Bible rather teaches about the Trinity in our salvation, is that the Father, Ephesians 2, decreed our salvation all the way back from eternity past. And then we learn in the Gospels that the Son accomplished our salvation on the cross. And then we learn through all the rest of the New Testament that it is the Spirit that applies that salvation, won by Christ, decreed by the Father, to each of us individually. Now, if why is this so important to begin each service with an idea of the Trinity? Because if you only have an idea of God's transcendence, He's going to seem too lofty, and he'll never seem imminent or close or nearby to you. I had a privilege uh, back in 2016 to go to Europe, and I, I went in Belgium and Austria, and I went in, into these massive, you know, thousand-year-old cathedrals where the, the ceiling is 300 feet above you, and the stained glass is incredible, and there's statues all over everything, and, and it would take you years to, to look at all the detail in the architecture. And, and the, the one, I, I love that. I think it's beautiful. But here's the problem with it. If that's the only kind of idea you have of God, all you're going to see is His loftiness. Now, we need to see His loftiness. But the Bible says that Jesus was given the name, what? Emmanuel. And that meant God with us. The, the God that is infinitely transcendent is also intimately imminent. And aren't you glad that He's right here? And so if we only focus on God's transcendence, which we should focus on, we're going to miss the imminence. But if we only think, if, if we have a hyper-evangelistic kind of idea in our church and all we're ever thinking about is Christ's saving works, we may forget it that, that it was that Father who chose us in Christ. Jesus, as John Piper said, didn't come to wrestle the whip out of his Father's hand. He was doing the Father's will and saving us. So we need to understand the Father. And then we have the Spirit. It was He who, the Scriptures tell us, went out and found us and adopted us into God's family and even now seals us until the day of our redemption. But if we focus too much on the Holy Spirit alone, we'll miss the totality of the revelation of God in our salvation and we'll end up winding up drifting into a foggy mysticism. And this is one of the reasons that for Northridge Life Church, a healthy Trinitarian 
position is not negligible. It's not a minor thing. Paul emphasized the same fact in his benediction to the Corinthians in the last chapter of 2 Corinthians. He said, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So, secondarily, singing the glory of Patri establishes that we have assembled for one single purpose. We are not, we didn't come together to give you five tips for a better marriage. We did not come together to help you to figure out, you know, how to uh, sow your, your miracle seed faith and, and reap a harvest. We didn't tell you anything that. We came for the express purpose of giving glory to that triune God. These gatherings are never about us. And in our culture today, in the, in the generation in which we live, that is the hardest thing for people to hear. We have such a, a human-centered view of church. What's in it for me? But these gatherings are never about us. They're only about Him. Paul, again, great, great benediction at the end of the first chapter of 1 Timothy, he said, To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory. Is what we're singing about forever and ever. The glory belongs to God, world without end. That's a King James phrase that simply means for all eternity or forever and ever. Do you understand the impact of that? What we're doing when we're singing the glory to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we are, we are just one step in a process that started millennia before us and will continue throughout all eternity. World without end. Amen. Amen. Next, in our services, we have the call to worship. And this is the short encouragement given immediately following the Gloria Patri. And this call is always grounded in Scripture by reading a psalm or other appropriate passage. The Gloria Patri gives the church the foundation and the, and the purpose for our worship, to give glory to God. But the call reminds me of the many promises and basis and reasons for why we are worshiping. What I want you to understand is the call to worship, when it's given, it is a summons. Just as if someone came to your house with a little piece of paper and say, hey, you got to show up at court on the 25th. It's a summons. It's calling you. That's why it's called, duh, the call to worship. It's calling the people of God to assemble as the one body, granting our attention to God alone. Now, some churches of, you know, different theologies, they, they gather in their church and they try to summon the Holy Spirit. We used to sing a song, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And let me tell you something, no offense to the songwriter, the people in this room, I'm sure that love that song, it's, abs- it's an absurd thought. It's an absolutely absurd thought. One, the Holy Spirit is everywhere. And we do not summon the Holy Spirit like people smoking peyote summoning up their dead ancestors. We don't summon Him. He summons us. He calls us. He says, come in, plug in, dig in, now. And that's what the call to worship is about. It's foolish to think we can conjure the Holy Spirit up. Instead, biblically, He is calling to us through the church. The call to worship is a practice dating back to the ancient Israelites. If you read through the law, you'll find that silver trumpets were designed by God and built by craftsmen in the community to call the people to appear before the Lord. Many of the Psalms are calls to worship over and over and over again. Notable examples. Psalm 149, Psalm 150. Add that to your homework. Psalm 29 is a great call to worship. It says... Psalm 29, verse 1, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord glory to His name, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. That is, if you remember your English classes, that is all written in the imperative. It is a command. It's a call. Ascribe to the Lord. Worship the Lord. Ascribe to Him glory do His name. So the call, when the call is given, it reminds us 
to pull away from everything else, all the junk that we brought in here, and we all do it. We've all brought junk. We've all lived in a fallen world as fallen people. But it reminds us to pull away from everything else for the purpose of ascribing glory to God alone. So the beauty of the glory of Patri and the call to worship together are best experienced in this way. When long before you come to church, Saturday morning, Sunday morning, you intentionally prepare yourself to sing the glory of Patri, to sing, to pay close attention to the call to worship. What if instead of letting the first note of the glory of Patri being your signal to finish getting your coffee out in the foyer and scurrying into the worship center, you instead, having prepared your heart to give glory to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, sing it loudly as the statement of your soul that you individual and we corporately will give glory to the Father, glory to the Son, glory to the, to the Holy Ghost. What if you paid closer attention to the call of worship? Here's an absurd thought. What if we all looked at, uh, read along with, usually it's Gabriel giving it, get, read along with Gabriel while he's giving us the call to worship in our Bibles. And what if we let the verses that are being laid out and read to us inform and empower the next few moments of our praise? The promises that are in there. Now we come to one of the most central elements in almost any church service, doesn't matter, denomination or tradition, and that is the singing of praises. And this is the area, however, where Northridge Life Church and, and most churches that adhere to the regulative principle um, will function in a noticeably different way with a different goal in mind. Now, music in the church has traditionally been about expressing thanksgiving to God, uh, and, and, and there, there was a goal in mind. It was not... Um, it was not an end goal in itself, but it was directly related to preparation to hear God's word preached. It's also been a time in, in the service where people in the church encourage one another by singing scriptural truths to each other. Now, let me say that again. It's a time where we encourage one another by singing scriptural truths to each other. Now, some of you, if you still paying attention, if you're following me along this, this far, that just blew your mind because you had no idea that you were singing for others. See, worship in the church is supposed to be, it's designed to be others-focused and participatory. But we've largely replaced this in our culture with, instead of uh, you know mutual encouragement of the saints one to another, we've replaced it with polished performances enhanced by state-of-the-art technology. We don't want to encourage each other with our singing, so we'll just let the pros do it. We'll let them handle it. And spectators, never in the intention of God, have replaced worshipers, and it has entrenched us in an unhealthy self-absorption in an act that we falsely call worship. Let me give you some biblical basis for that so you don't think I'm just sharing you my opinion. There's a couple verses like this, but I want to focus on Colossians 3.16. Let the word of God, let the word of Christ rather, dwell in you richly. That's what we're talking about, singing the word, praying the word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now, I'm going to pause right there. Is that written to preachers only? Say it loudly. Is that written to preachers only? It's written to the whole church. You, 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 are the ones that were commanded by the Apostle Paul to teach and admonish one another. And you, uh, some of you are starting to break out on this slide. I'm not a teacher. I could never stand up in front of these people. I don't do public speaking well. I, I could never do that. Well, Paul's going to show you how you do do it. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The idea behind corporate worship is that, is that when I'm singing, I, I, uh, you know, I may be all kinds of discouraged, but I hear Gabriel singing, and I'm like, man, faith is coming in. Has faith come by hearing the Word of God? He's singing the Word of God to me. I'm, 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 he's teaching me by singing to me. But he's on the platform. When Tyler sings, he's teaching me. When Eddie sings, he's teaching me. 
And I want to be singing loudly so that I can teach you. Now, what I'm not trying to teach you is how to sing. Because I don't do that very well. But I do have something, a thankfulness in my heart, that I want to teach you about. And I hope you feel the same way about me. But we've gotten tired of the same old familiar songs. We want something new and exciting. And there's nothing wrong with new songs. That's not my point. But we don't necessarily always want something that will instruct our souls as much as we want something that will stir our emotions. So we sacrifice rich theology and music to production value. And if you put those two things on a scale, production value, rich theology, those scales are going to go like this. I'd rather uh, hear a guy play his six string with three strings and and uh, no singing voice that's singing to me rich theology than a full-blown, you know, polished band that's singing to me drivel. And all that does is it strokes our cultural lust for entertainment. But there's nothing like the staying power of the Scripture-infused songs of Zion that are rich in theology that remind us of a Lamb who died to take away sin, of a Christ who reigns, and of Christ who is returning for His bride. See, musical fads, they come and they go, but scriptural truth never fades or fails. Isaiah said, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Obsession with cultural relevance in worship, in church worship is an unrelenting and inconsistent Taskmaster. You know why? Because it demands constant change. The one thing I never want anybody saying uh, uh, in this church is like, we're striving to be relevant. No, we're striving to be biblical and faithful. That's what we're striving to be. Because the second we decide that our main motivating goal is to be relevant, we got to change every single week. Every time the wind changes direction, we got to change direction. You following me? Next week, now, we're going to examine the prayers of our service, the reading of catechisms, preaching, communion, benediction. But we'll consider, we'll consider all those things as actual means whereby the Holy Spirit communicates grace to the church and the individuals uh, of which a church can consist. So I, I really hope you'll make plans to hear the second part of this. But the best application for any service that, uh, sermon that's ever preached is repentance. It is, just repenting. Now, while some of you may have an image of repentance that requires, you know, sackcloth and ashes, weeping loudly and, and um, you know, avoiding lightning bolts that God is throwing to you from his heavenly throne. It, it's true that repentance may be accompanied with sorrow for the sins that made it necessary, but I want to remind you again, as I have before, that the Greek word metanoia literally means to change your mind. And that's how I'd like to encourage you to repent in response to what you've heard so far. If you're the kind of person that shows up 20 minutes late and yawns your way through the Gloria Patri and the call to worship, if you're even here to, to hear those things, um, and, and, and trust me, if you are if you are one of those people, I'm not picking on you, I'm talking about, there's a lot of people that are here way on time and they're, they're yawning through the Gloria Patri and the call to worship. What I'm trying to get at is, can you just ask yourself in, in a moment of repentance, can you ask yourself right now, do I come into this place Sunday mornings completely on cruise control? Just... The familiarity of, of what we do is bred contempt in me, and so I'm just hitting the cruise, and, and you know, maybe I'll, I'll perk up again once the sermon starts or some other thing that you prefer, but, but you know, I'm just setting it on cruise control. And so you work through, the, through our liturgy robotically, unfeelingly, devoid of real faith that makes it come to life, that makes you hear the words that you're singing instead of just singing the words you're seeing. Romans 12 speaks so much to this, and you probably, because I haven't, certainly not boasting, because I've never heard a message on this content preached with a close with this verse. Romans 12.1 I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Every time you see the word sacrifice in the Bible, New Testament, Old, we're talking about worship. It's always in relation to worship. And so present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is, here it is, your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be 
transformed by the renewal of your mind, the metanoia, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, regulative or normative, what is good and what is acceptable. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about regulative versus normative and what is perfect. And you know why it's perfect? Because it's good and acceptable. That's why it's perfect to God. Because it's good and it's acceptable. So when you sing the glory of Patri, sing it with a joyful heart, bursting with the desire to glorify the triune author of your salvation. Give full consideration to the scriptural call to appear before God and worship Him according to His will. And when you sing, sing loudly, not self-consciously fretting over your lack of musical talent. Lord knows I don't. But sing so that others around you might hear and be encouraged to continue fighting the good fight of faith, prompted on by you. Real quick story. I know we're running just a tiny bit late, but real quick story i got to tell. Uh, a week ago Wednesday, we were in worship. Just to illustrate this point. We had our, have our Wednesday night services, and we started worship. Natalie is leading worship, and I'm sitting on the front row, and all of a sudden, I hear the most joyful singing that I've ever heard in my life. This incredibly joyful outburst of praise to God. And it was coming from, I'm going to get his attention, three-year-old Benaiah right there. He, he, I'm talking about you, buddy. He, he heard, he, because, you know, I'm sure his mom sings those songs around the house, he knew every single word, and he was singing them like I want to sing them. He was singing them loudly. And the most beautiful part of it is this kid, three years old, is getting it. Because as soon as we are done, he turns to his father and he says, I sang loud, Daddy. And I loved it. I loved it. And so th- this is the Wednesday when we got in church. I looked at him before we go and Natalie was cranking up and I said, you going to sing loud again? Because that's, that's, that did exactly what Paul's talking about. It, it, it instructed me. It taught me. I'm sitting here. I'm, I'm almost 50 years older than this kid and he is shaming me with his worship. And that's what I want for my life. What did Jesus say? Anybody who comes to him has to come like what? Like a little child. So here's your admonition for next week. Sing like him. Okay? Let's pray. Stand with me. Father, thank you so much for the truths of your word. We thank you, God, that you have given us instructions. You've given us commands. You've given us regulations on on how to worship and and not to put us in, in chains, but Lord, because... You wanted us to know the worship that pleases you so that you can transform our hearts to be like you and to, to rejoice in, in your goodness. And so, Lord, I pray that you would let that spirit of metanoia just rest here, that we would say, man, I am, I've been shortchanging myself with my investment in our worship. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would just open all of our hearts to, to sing loudly like this little child. God, to sing loudly and, and, and sing just like he did for the joy of our Father, Lord. I just pray that you do that transforming work in us, Lord. I thank you for this group. And Lord, I just pray, I thank you for those who are so faithful. God, those that are, are struggling but still struggling, God, still moving forward. And, and Lord, I, I just pray that those that may be asleep in the light would just be shaken by you, Lord God, to turn their hearts towards you and become true, passionate worshipers of Almighty God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You sang beautifully. That was awesome. I want to invite our communion workers to come forward, and uh, we are going to conclude our services the way we always do, and that is, as I said, in these terms, we are going to witness the Word. We're going to look at a living sermon um, Aren't you so glad that Jesus, the Bible says in the Psalms, it says he knows our frame. He knows that we're but dust. And in that, he gave us the ordinance of the Lord's Supper so that in these locked in these sensory bodies, we could see, we could hear, we could taste, we could smell, we could touch this living sermon of his love for us, the, the see that he was broken, taste the, 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 the bitterness of the cup and, and understand 
the sacrifice that he made for us in shedding his blood. And so I want you to, to just be thinking worshipfully about those things as you come and receive the elements. You can take them back to your, to your seats. And, um, and we'll, uh, we'll take them together in a moment. You can go ahead and come on. Just want to say, if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus yet, make that right first. Come and see us after the service, but don't, don't come up and, and receive until you have resolved um, where you stand with Jesus. This whole section and many other sections of 1 Corinthians that we read from each week, um, believe it or not, is Paul addressing the regulative principle. The church in Corinth had, had totally perverted what Christ had had instituted in the Lord's Supper. And so what Paul is doing is he's setting things back in order according to Christ's commandments. And so he begins this passage, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now let's give thanks. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for just uh, the, the sacrifice of Jesus. We thank you for the clarity of the gospel that we see in this sacrament. And Lord, we pray that we would be people who would, um, who would bend our lives in submission towards the gospel this week as we've renewed the covenant. We want to stand before you, God, righteous, um, God, we know we're righteous because you've made us righteous, you've imputed your righteousness. But Lord, we want to be not just righteous, but pleasing to you in all we do. And so, Lord, we pray that, that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I would just want to speak this benediction over you. Jesus says to the woman at the well, But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father, in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.